science story. Huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week, in honor of Mother's Day, we're presenting stories about moms. Whether it's being a mom or having a mom, most of us have done at least one of those things. Our first story today is from Jessica Hoey. Jessica developed this story over the course of just a couple days as part of a workshop we conducted in D.C. last November for ocean scientists, and she performed the story at the private show that we held on the last day. This show and workshop were made possible by the Tiffany & Co. Foundation, which seeks to preserve the world's most treasured landscapes and seascapes. So my five-year-old daughter, Kiki, looked up at me with her big blue eyes with complete trust, like a puppy, (laughs) and she said to me, Mum, are mermaids real? And before I answered, I thought about it, paused, and I thought I could give her a semi-scientific answer and say, well, you know, they're... They are mythical creatures that sailors used to see and they actually saw dugongs if you're in Australia or manatees if you're in the US and they mistook them for mermaids. But instead I looked down at her and in her hand was a very old, well-loved plastic mermaid Barbie doll with hair sticking up in every which direction (laughs) because it goes with her everywhere and she was still staring at me. And I looked at her and I said, Yes. (laughs) Yes, mermaids are real. In fact, your dad and I see them all the time when we dive, doing research all the time. And she just sort of nodded and said, like, yeah, I thought so, and walked off. She was really happy. And I realised that I just dug a hole and then made it just that little bit deeper. And... It happened when we were at Lizard Island, which is in the northern part of the Great Barrier Reef on a field trip, and she wanted evidence. So she knew we were going out on dives with underwater cameras and things like that, and every time we would come back, uh, she would go, so did you catch any on film? And we would say, look, they're really fast. You know, we, <laughs> we, did, we did not see any this time, but maybe next time. And this kept happening, and I could see the trust diminishing and we had to do something and and luckily we saw Lacey this is the crazy head Barbie doll one day um, detached from Kiara who I think was having a sleep and we took it out on a dive and we tethered it to the coral reef (laughs) with fishing line because it's see-through underwater and we got down and we took this amazing photograph of Lacey on the reef and we got back and we were like Key, Kiki we got a photo And we showed her and she was stoked. You know, mermaids were real and she was really, really happy. And I thought that that's it, we're done. Um, But she needed more evidence. Um, That was cool, but it didn't really move. And I was, we were back at work. Um, I was heading out on a different field trip on a a tourism ferry out to a pontoon, a tourist pontoon on the reef um, to do a site inspection because um, we need to make sure the facilities are up to scratch so they don't harm the reef if there's a cyclone. 
and um, you know, I had a camera with me at the time, and I was I was surprised. On the ferry with me was a professional mermaid with her videographer. <laughs> from Hawaii, she was over visiting to do a, a video on the reef, and I asked her if I could take some footage of her, and so I got this underwater video of her swimming along. She had the custom-made tail. It looked, it looked legit. <laughs> and I got, I got home and I showed her and it was fantastic. She was, she was like, right, it's, they're real, you know, it's done. And um, I was now an authority on mermaids and I was pretty happy about that, you know. My, her, her faith in me was restored. And then she looked at me again and she said... So what about unicorns? <laughs> and I was like, um, uh, I'm not really sure about unicorns, sweetie. I'm an ocean person, um, but I'll check it out. Um, and I thought, what horse people do I know? Um, not many. And it was around about the time that my husband was doing his PhD and luckily um, he was actually... Uh, filming underwater, he would put down um, clumps of seaweed or algae and he would film them because what he was trying to work out was what fish came and ate the seaweed um, after a disturbance. So if there's a cyclone or coral bleaching, the first thing that usually starts to grow um, is either the algae or the coral if it's there and they compete. And so he was trying to work out what are the important fish and are the, the herbivores all equal? Are there any important ones? And being the good wife, I said, yeah, sure, honey, I'll help you analyse your video, underwater video. I know how to count fish and identify them. And I was on maternity leave, pregnant with my second child, so, you know, that was cool. And 1,100 hours later and 120,000 bites later, play, pause, play, pause, we actually worked out that one species took 80% of all the bites on this really large, fleshy macroalgae. And it was the unicorn fish. <laughs> and I thought, this is gold. It's, it's cool. And I showed Kiara the footage and explained to her, you know, Daddy found a unicorn <coughs> fish on the reef and it's really important. Um, it eats the algae and it helps the baby corals grow because it doesn't take up their homes. And she thought, okay, daddy's found sort of a unicorn fish and it's really important for the reef that I love. So that was fantastic. I had my second child and we we're in Fiji um, and doing some research there. My husband was working with the local community and my daughter and I noticed that the villagers were taking out a lot of unicorn fish to, to eat. And they call it civi civi over there. And, I mean, from a, a scientific perspective, I was quite worried for them because they were removing the insurance policy for the reef. If something went wrong, they were taking out the things that could help it recover. Kiki was devastated. She was like, how can they be taking out the unicorn fish from the reef? You know, it's really important and it's pretty and it's got a horn. You need to make them stop. And I said, well, sweetie, you know, I can tell you what to do, but this is their country and their culture and that fish is really important to them and they take it for reasons that, you know, are important to them. I can't just tell them to stop. So she thought about it and stomped her little foot and said, well, I'm going to write a book. And I'm like, okay, good luck with that. 
But, you know, I helped her, like good mum would. It was a picture book. She wasn't that old. Um, and she did this amazing picture book to try and explain how important the unicorn fish was to the local kids. And she called it Super Civvy Civvy Saves the Reef. And it had a cape and it had a big S on its, on its chest and things like that. And she felt good, you know. She, she left the book there and, and, and it was great. And I got home and I'm back at work again and... I don't know if many of you have been watching the news, but in 2016-17, the Great Barrier Reef has experienced back-to-back bleaching events, which is pretty full-on. Um, you know, there, there was no break in the impact, and the corals have suffered in some parts. And I thought to myself, right, right now the unicorn fish and other fish that eat the algae um, are going to be really important for the Great Barrier Reef, which is my home. And I had to travel up far north part of the Great Barrier Reef coastline and speak to local fishermen in a pretty remote part of um, the coastline um, where they have sort of like I fish and I vote stickers on their utes or their pickup trucks, as you would say, here. And I thought, right, I need to talk about the results from recent coral bleaching surveys and talk to them about the importance of what they can do to help the reef. There is no way I'm going to be able to use a picture book with these people. Um, it's just not going to go down well. So I get up there, I stand up in front of them, I, I go through the survey results on a PowerPoint and I get to the last slide, which is about what you can do and there's one little dot point about, you know, protect herbivores. And I thought, yeah, I might try, I might try something. And I said, look, you know, I know you guys love to fish. I don't want you to stop fishing. I know it's part of part of your life. But the reef is off your... your um, mainland here is undergoing some really hard recovery time at the moment and it needs some fish to help it get back there so there's probably some fish you shouldn't take if you could really just stop taking them for six months that'd be awesome okay bye I just wanted to get off the stage because I thought yeah it's probably not going to go down well and as I was closing one of the local fishermen said so which fish and I was like oh they're actually interested this is great and I said, well, you know, there's the unicorn fish and there's some parrot fish and some rabbit fish. And they wanted to know more. They wanted to know what they looked like, what their names were. And I was sort of skirting around telling them, please don't take these specific species. And the guys in the audience just said, bloody hell, love, just tell us which fish you don't want us to take. <laughs> and I was amazed. I was like, oh, my God, this, uh, you know, actually working. And... The f- crazy thing out of that out of that um, meeting is the local community was so worried about what was happening. They said, "Well, we need to make a poster. We need to make a poster that shows pictures of the fish that people shouldn't take, shouldn't spear off off the reef." And I look back on it now and I laugh and I think a picture book actually worked, <laughs> you know, for these locals. And the amazing thing is, is that this poster is now in fish shops up and down the you know, two and a half thousand kilometres of the Great Barrier Reef coastline. And it makes me really proud to know that we didn't need to regulate or put in a rule. It was just a chat. It was just pub talk in a way. And, you know, it persuaded people to voluntarily not take these, not take these fish. And the other thing that sticks with me is, you know, it was okay and I'm really proud that I did... Um, make my daughter understand and, and believe that mermaids are real and unicorns can save the reef. Thank you.
was Jessica Hoey. Jessica is the director of Reef Health Reporting at the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. The reef forms part of her being, both in the office and in her personal life. She jumps at any chance to get her kids out on the ocean, from building forts out of driftwood on Lizard Island to swimming with reef sharks. Before we move on to the next story today, I just want to let everyone know that support for today's podcast is brought to you by Hanover Square Press, publisher of Exit Strategy by Charlton Pettis. This thrilling new novel imagines a world where a secret organization has the power to offer a completely new life to the rich and powerful clients who can afford it. A new name, a new face, and everything you need to start over is only a phone call away. But when the brilliant founder of a medical technology startup realizes he made a mistake, he discovers just how difficult it is to break Exit Strategy's cardinal rule. You can never, ever go back. Fans of Robert Ludlum, Michael Crichton, and Harlan Coben will love this cutting-edge, globe-trotting thriller. It is perfect for any reader who has ever wondered what types of shadowy dealings go on behind the scenes of the world we think we know. Get ready for the perfect escape and pick up a copy of Exit Strategy by Charlton Pettis, available now wherever books are sold. Our second story today is from Jamie Brickhouse. This story was recorded in December 2017 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was power. It was her hair that finally convinced me that things weren't quite right with my mother, Mama Jean. She and my father were visiting me in New York in 2008, up from Beaumont, Texas, where they lived and where I grew up. And I pulled my father aside, and I said, what's wrong with her hair? It looks like she did it herself. And he gave me this weary, exasperated look, and he said, well, that's because she did. She fired her last beauty operator. He said the ga- she said the gal kept screwing up her appointments. Your mother was the one who screwed up the appointments. I looked at her hair, and it looked like a home perm that was left out in the rain. Instead of the usual raven mane quaffed into a perfect helmet, which she had done once a week. Now, my mother, Mama Jean, hadn't had her hair done, I mean, hadn't done her hair, her hair herself since she was in high school. I mean, she never left the house not being camera ready. Face on, hair perfectly coiffed, nails perfectly manicured. So for her to leave Beaumont for a trip to New York City without getting her hair done was cataclysmic. And Mama Jean, you have to also know, was always in charge. She was always in the driver's seat, figuratively and literally, behind the wheel of a red Cadillac. She made all the money. She called all the shots. And when she was on to me about something, she could scare the shit out of me. So during that visit uh, in 2008, I was a little bit worried that she might notice that things weren't quite right with me either. And when I was in the kitchen making brunch, she walked in and I almost jumped out of my own skin. And I had a drink over um, on the counter in the corner, which thank God she didn't see. And I'm like, you know, what's the big deal? I'm having a drink while I'm making brunch. But the big deal was that I was supposed to be sober because I had been to rehab about a year and a half earlier at her expense. 
And I had what we call, call in uh, the alcoholic world um, a low bottom. I had overdosed on a, a, a bottle of sleeping pills, the intentional kind. And when Mama Jean got news of that overdose, she slapped on her face and hopped on a plane, hair perfectly done, and she headed up to New York. And when I came back from detox, she was waiting for me in my apartment, and she pointed a perfectly sculpted red fingernail at me. Your drinking days are over. And by the way, suicide is a mortal sin. So it's a good thing you didn't succeed. Otherwise, you couldn't spend eternity in heaven with me. Then she pulled out her checkbook and off I went to rehab. So I sure as hell was not going to tell her that I had been relapsing. Now, there had been other signs that things weren't right with her that my father was noticing. And at first he thought it might be early signs of Alzheimer's. She was forgetting things. She was getting lost when she was driving. But he had been, he was old enough and he'd been around enough people with Alzheimer's that it didn't feel quite like that. And one morning... She um, glared at him, and he said, what? What's wrong? And she said, I can't believe you let those women have sex with you in the lobby of the hotel while I'm up in the room. He just looked at her and said, that didn't happen. And more of these kinds of things happened, and that became a running gag with him. It didn't happen. And it was like she just couldn't let go that these were dreams or nightmares. Um, she couldn't not convince herself that they didn't actually happen. And after that visit in fall of 2008, uh, the following summer in 2009, things really went haywire. She drove her red Cadillac to the beauty parlor, and she drove it uh, backed into a light pole. But that wasn't the worst part. She drove there sans pants. Her priorities were in order, but the execution was misfiring. <laughs> and then about a week later, she called the cops and said that there were intruders in the living room and there was a little baby in the corner and a fuzzy animal under the dining room chair. The policeman showed up, no intruders, no baby, no fuzzy animal, and she was just out of her head. And my father had to hospitalize her in the local psych ward in Beaumont, uh, now, at that point, they had seen several doctors. He had seen her GP, who specialized in geriatric patients. They'd seen a psychiatrist a couple of times, and now she was in this psych ward, which actually turned out to be like bad outtakes from American Horror Story Asylum. So my father got her out of there, and he got her to this fancy facility in Houston about 80 miles away, which was a geriatric facility. And then I hopped on a plane, and I did what she'd done for me, and I flew down to Texas to be by her side, and during that first visit, it was like she was tripping on acid. She couldn't follow a train of thought, and she was seeing things that weren't there and afraid that her worst nightmares were coming true. Now, I don't think she's ever done acid, but I have, and I know what it looks like. <laughs> and then at one point, she looked at me and she said, with your pretty red hair, you almost remind me of... And then she trailed off. Everything she said that day lacked the one thing she'd never lacked, conviction. But if you've ever been around someone who has dementia or some kind of disease where they're slipping away, there are those moments when flashes of their real personality pop out. And one of those moments happened during that visit, which I'll get back to in a minute. So we still weren't getting any answers. This geriatric facility, they weren't telling us anything. They were happy to take her insurance money and take good care of her. 
and none of those doctors that we'd seen before were coming up with anything. And it wasn't until a friend of the family reached out to my father and she said that she heard what was going on with Jean. This was a small town. And it sounded like she had what her husband had had, which was Louis body dementia. Louis what? We'd never heard of it. And then we quickly looked into it, and turns out it's not a rare disease, even though no one's ever heard of it. An estimated 1.4 million people in America alone are affected by it. And yet, none of those doctors, geriatric specialists, hadn't even heard of it or even mentioned the name to us. And it's a um, neurological condition, a type of progressive dementia that causes deterioration in critical and analytical thinking and motor movements and memory. And uh, Lewy bodies are proteins in the brain that uh, when they accumulate as neurons, that's when the craziness starts to happen. They're named after the doctor who discovered them, uh, Dr. Frederick Louis, L-E-W-Y, a German neurologist who discovered them in 1912. And when we started going through the symptoms, our heart started to sink because we were checking each one of them. There was uh, wild hallucinations, uh, delusions, um, uh, memory loss, um, aphasia. She had that. She was having problems finding words. I remember one time she was saying, what's that stuff you put on your face to make yourself look pretty? Makeup. And um, our hearts just really kind of plummeted. And then we hustled. And we found a really good neurologist in Houston. And we took her to that first appointment with him. And there was another flash of pure mama Jean when he tested her reflexes and he pulled out that little rubber hammer and he hit her knee. She screamed, God damn it, and punched him. The doctor reared back and looked at my father, and he said, I've never had a patient do that to me before. My father said proudly, well, you've never met Gene Brickhouse. <laughs> and he took a brain scan. And when he got it back and when we saw it, it looked like, well, you remember those, those round glass plasma balls that when you touch them, there's electricity in there, and they, they, they go crazy like a, like a Texas electrical storm? That's what her brain scan looked like. And the answer was yes, she had Lewy body dementia. And there is no cure for Lewy body dementia. It's a progressive disease, as I said earlier. And like alcoholism, it's a progressive disease. But with alcohol, it can be arrested. And a lot of people can live with it for a very long time and not live well. Fortunately for her, although we didn't see it that way at the time, her decline was rapid fire. From the time she got that diagnosis in September, um, she was already on her deathbed in December. She had, she had stopped responding. She had stopped talking. She had stopped opening her eyes. She stopped eating. And then her body kind of curved into this arthritic ball near the end. And when I was down there in Beaumont, standing by her deathbed, I thought about that first visit when I saw her in that geriatric facility in Houston. Remember I said there was that moment, that flash of Mama Jean, and, and I was about to say goodbye to her, and my mind was trying to erase 
what I had just seen. A mad woman in my mother's body, wearing a nightgown that needed changing, no makeup, and a crushed bouffant. And then she grabbed my arm in a vice grip. And I turned around, and she was pointing a red fingernail at me, and she said, You've been drinking! The nail polish was chipped. No, I haven't. Don't lie to me. And I wasn't. I said I'd been relapsing, as I told you before, but I wasn't at that moment. I had seven months sober and was trying to finally get a year. But how could she know that? You better not be lying. Remember, Mama? That's all behind us. You took care of that. I have you to think. And I thought to myself... Who would blame me if I drank over my mother losing her mind? But there was another way to look at it. If you can't stay sober for yourself, do it for her. I looked her in the eye. You don't have to worry anymore. Okay, but promise me. Promise. I promise. And then I saw her as I knew her best. Dressed for a party. Face on, nails manicured, hair perfectly coiffed. It was the last time she was Mama Jean. She died December 14th. Two weeks later, I finally got a year sober. I've been sober ever since. So she died, having known that I was sober with her help, but never knowing that she saved me one last time. Thank you. That was Jamie Brickhouse. Jamie is a three-time Moss Story Slam champion and a writer whose work has been published in the New York Times, the International Herald Tribune, Washington Post, Daily Beast, Salon, Out, and more. He's recorded voiceovers for the legendary cartoon Beavis and Butthead and is currently touring his award-winning solo show, Dangerous When Wet, Booze, Sex, and My Mother, which is based on his critically acclaimed memoir and directed by Obi-winning David Drake. Jamie is also a board member of the Lewy Body Dementia Resource Center. To find out more about LBD, visit www.lewybodyresourcecenter.org. Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker. That's me. With help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, as well as Liz Neely and Paula Croxon. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Tiffany & Co. Foundation and Caveat for hosting these shows, and to my mom. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast comes from Wondery's new series, American Innovations. Science and technology have transformed the world we live in. But how did we get here? On Wondery's new series, American Innovations, you'll hear the stories behind DNA and the mapping of the human genome, the rise of the personal computer, artificial intelligence, and more. Don't miss a single episode. Search for American Innovations on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now, or head to wondery.fm slash story. That's wondery.fm forward slash story. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.